Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. The traveler, traveling through it, may not dare, not openly view it. Never its mysteries are exposed to the weak human eye unclosed. That was an excerpt from Edgar Allan Poe's poem, Dreamland, a poem that, like many other of his works, is shrouded in a mysterious and haunted veil. The name of the poem was used as a nickname for a place similarly enveloped in an aura of secrecy. A place that has been incorporated into our modern-day mythology and lore. Its name, as recognizable as the White House. It is a place that demands so much interest, it has been the subject of films, books, news reports, and countless conspiracy theories. It is so well known that the surrounding towns generate an economy just from the tourism the place attracts. That place is Area 51, nearly 4,800 square miles of restricted airspace, several conspicuous buildings, and generations of rumors. Area 51 is as iconic as it is classified. To some, a top-secret military base developing the highest levels of stealth technology. To others, a conspiracy hotbed containing aliens, cover-ups, and even underground travel networks. And while some of these theories might be a little bit of a stretch, when you look at Area 51, even the facts are fairly peculiar. What we do know is the technological development that came from the heart of Area 51 progressed at an alarming rate. Enough so that it's really hard not to believe that there are many great secrets that have been housed at Area 51 over the years. Something is going on there. Something the government, for one reason or another, does not want us to know about. Something that, to this day, is still protected and kept under a firmly shut lid. What that something is, we may never know. But we can certainly try to figure it out. There are enough pieces to the puzzle of Area 51 that we can uncover a few of its deepest secrets.
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today we're talking about Area 51, a place that jumped into American lore in the 1950s and has remained there ever since, producing countless upon countless rumors. But what was really going on at Area 51? Well, today we're going to look at the accepted version of the happenings at the famed military outpost. It is a story slowly pieced together through declassified CIA reports and first-hand accounts. This is what we consider to have actually happened over the last 60-some-odd years at Area 51, though at times it seems outlandish and borderline unbelievable. No matter what we believe, it is the official version. Next episode, we will cover the main conspiracy theories. Area 51 was a base that for a long time was completely top secret. In fact, from the time of its founding in 1955 until 2013, the government refused to admit Area 51 existed. They never even mentioned it by name. And because of this, the rumors swirled, as over the years, strange lights and noises emanated from the Nevada desert. But then, everything changed. On June 25, 2013, the CIA released a document that shocked the world. It was the declassified notes on a project authorized by President Dwight Eisenhower in 1955. It was the first time in 58 years an official document had recognized Area 51 by name, and it detailed several projects that the U.S. government worked on at Area 51 from the years 1955 until 1968. And why was the recognition so monumental? Because the CIA had spent the last six decades trying their best to deny anything and everything that had to do with Area 51 even attempting to wipe images of the base off any map in existence. But to understand this more clearly, we have to look at how and why this base was founded. At least in the official version, according to the CIA. In the 1950s, the dropping of the Iron Curtain created a virtual intelligence blackout in the USSR and in a good portion of Eastern Europe. The U.S., afraid of the Soviets' quickly evolving military program and in desperate need of information, required new technologies to spy on the Soviet Union. The current low-flying planes were too easy to see and shoot down, so they were not capable of the highly secret reconnaissance missions that were required. In November of 1954, President Eisenhower signed off on what was known as Project Aquatone, a collaboration between Lockheed, the well-known defense industries company, the Air Force, and the CIA. And because they were working on uncovering secrets, they needed to work in secret. So they selected Area 51, near a dried-up lake called Groom Lake in southwest Nevada. The plot of land was chosen not only because of its remote location, but also because it was already restricted due to a nearby nuclear test site. And the combination of isolation and security was too good to ignore. 
But the project lead, Lockheed's Kelly Johnson, was nervous about enticing workers to the remote location. So he nicknamed the place Paradise Ranch, part inside joke, part subtle manipulation to convince top talent to join their project. After several months of putting together a base suitable for their purposes, Project Aquatone got underway in the first half of 1955, building a plane the world had never seen before. That plane was called the U-2. It was designed to fly higher than any known plane in existence, hopefully high enough that it would go undetected by the Soviets' ground radar. In the 1950s, normal commercial flights could reach heights of 20,000 feet. Military planes could reach 40,000 feet. The U-2 had a maximum height of 70,000 feet. It was an unprecedented achievement. Yet, the test flights looked awfully suspicious, especially to commercial pilots. According to the CIA, this is actually where the first links between UFOs and Area 51 arose. Licensed pilots had never seen or known anything to fly so high. So when they saw the U-2 test from a distance, they assumed it could not be anything made on this planet. Could this really have been aliens? Or at least alien aircraft being tested by the military? Or perhaps the jump in technology from the dissection of an alien ship allowed for a more advanced ship. Whatever they were, the strange lights so high in the sky sparked controversy amongst the locals. And because the government could not divulge their secrets, they were unable to shut these rumors down. Instead, they called the tests natural phenomenon or high-altitude weather research. Well, these were excuses that only got fishier the more they were used. As for the U-2 planes, they were deployed over the USSR intermittently from July 1956 to May 1960, when the project came crashing down. Literally. That's right. On May 1st, 1960, the Soviets used a ground-to-air missile to shoot down a U-2 spy plane, piloted by Francis Gary Powers. The U.S. used a cover story that a weather plane was taken off course. This turned out to be a common excuse for the CIA whenever one of their secret projects were discovered. However, what the government didn't know is that the KGB recovered the plane intact, cameras and all. Powers was taken into custody by the USSR and used as proof that the U.S. was spying on Russia. Big picture-wise, this resulted in the cancellation of a Paris summit scheduled for mid-May of 1960, meant to discuss the tensions in a divided Germany. This only served to increase the ill will between the U.S. and Soviet Union. Powers was sentenced to prison and hard labor in the Soviet Union, but was later traded to the U.S. for a captured spy of their own. And, unfortunately for both sides, the distrust continued to boil. In regards to Area 51, this quickly made the U-2 obsolete, as it proved that the Soviets not only picked up the plane on radar, but were capable of shooting them down. However, because of the mounting tensions, the U.S. still needed intelligence. The fear of the Soviets' unknown striking capability and their secret nuclear arsenal was at an all-time high. The U.S. was desperate for information in order to always have the upper hand on their counterpart. So how did America plan to overcome this latest hiccup? By making things bigger, making them go higher, making them go faster. And so the A-12 Oxcart was born, a behemoth of a plane capable of flying 80,000 feet in the air and up to speeds of Mach 3. That is three times the speed of sound. 
Testing for the A-12 began in April of 1962 over the base at Groom Lake. The A-12 was known for its circular fuselage. This unique shape, combined with its incredible flying capabilities, did nothing to suppress the rumors linking Area 51 to UFOs. And even if you accept that the A-12 was man-made, it still is an incredible leap in technological capability. Quite suspicious to make such a profound leap from the U-2 in such a short period of time. Suspicious indeed, especially at a time when the U.S. was publicly flexing its technological muscles on a regular basis. Right. Because of the Cold War, America was more often than not ready to highlight its technological prowess rather than keep it a secret. Whether that was manifested in spaceflight or nuclear weapons, we wanted the world to know our full capabilities as a form of intimidation, which makes it all the more strange at how much they kept Area 51 under wraps. But we'll leave that as a discussion for the next episode. The A-12 Oxcart ran a handful of missions from 1964 to 1968, but was quickly retired from a much more advanced version of itself. In fact, that's what the A-12 is most famous for, laying the groundwork for the SR-71 Blackbird. A plane that was also tested at Area 51. The SR-71 was and is most famous for setting the record for fastest manned flight in 1976. It still holds this record today. Well, that is to say that the work happening at Area 51 was the forefront of technology which means they were dealing with and creating things that were never seen before. When man ran the first trains in the 1800s, people would often get hit when walking or playing around on the tracks. The reason being, they had no judgment of how fast the train was coming because nothing in the world had moved that quickly. They had no frame of reference to know that they should get out of the way. So we're saying that because there was no frame of reference, people could not imagine human technologies to be so powerful, and they needed a scapegoat to blame it on. Exactly right. Planes like the A-12 and the SR-71 Blackbird were so far ahead of their time that their appearance not only shocked people, but were so far beyond their comprehension that they needed to make the leap to an extraterrestrial cause. Is it possible, then, that these planes have shaped the way we think about UFOs? It's possible. The term for flying saucer arose back in 1947 when pilot Kenneth Arnold tried to describe a mysterious shape he saw in the sky. He described their flight pattern as what it would be like to skip saucers across the water, and the name stuck. After Arnold, loads of people started reporting sightings of these saucers around the country. Flash forward 15 years, when the A-12 was making its first test flights, the idea of flying saucers was still fresh in the public's memory. And while this might not have founded the idea of funny flying discs, it certainly helped to reinforce it and really hammer the image into American lore. And while all these test flights were drawing more and more eyes to the strange Nevada desert, the government kept their lips sealed and did their best to convince the world that Area 51 didn't exist. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. And now, let's continue our story. To say Area 51 is a secure military base is an understatement. In fact, even today, it is arguably the most highly classified military facility in the United States. The physical layout of Area 51 has changed little since 1955, with only several additions of various hangars and runways over the years. However, while the base itself is small, Above it are millions of acres of restricted airspace. Since 1955, the government has tried and succeeded to buy as much property around the base as possible. The road leading up to it is desolate, and by the time you reach the front gate, there are most likely many cameras and eyes watching you. While not fenced, the restricted area is surrounded by signs, warning any that dare to trespass that security is authorized to use deadly force on any who insist on crossing the borders. Over the years, there have been certain desolate hikes that offer the opportunity to view Area 51 from atop estranged hilltops. However, the government has slowly and efficiently bought these parcels of land to try and contain their secrets as best as possible. They've even gone after maps erasing Area 51 and the road leading up to it from any maps made of the area. They did this until satellite photography took over as the primary method of map making, making it more and more difficult to hide the handful of buildings in the southern Nevada desert. Even satellites, as they were first coming into popularity in the 1960s and 70s, were strictly prohibited from taking pictures of the sites. In fact, in 1974, an American government satellite did accidentally capture a photograph of the base when it was not supposed to. The Skylab satellite mission inadvertently photographed the base in early 1974. It was the only place they were instructed to not photograph. Wait a minute. The only place on all of planet Earth? On all of planet Earth. So, if you have not gotten a sense of just how sensitive the U.S. was in regards to Area 51 before this, you certainly should by now. Because that means, in 1974, the government considered the happenings at Area 51 to be the greatest secret on Earth. That's quite a designation. A designation that seems a little extreme, especially when the Soviets had their own satellites capturing pictures of the Earth. And on top of that, what information could really be gained from grainy aerial photographs of runways and planes? Perhaps there was a greater secret they wanted to hide. Perhaps there was something that, if photographed, would reveal a great secret the government didn't think the public was ready to handle. Perhaps, but the CIA's official version doesn't claim anything of the sort. In any case, what happened with the accidental photograph? Well, this actually spurred an argument between the Department of Defense and NASA. The former wanted to classify the image, but the latter argued against it. In the end, the government decided not to classify the image. However, it went completely unnoticed until a journalist dug it up in 2006. Ironic how the classified information draws millions of eyes, 
but the unclassified photograph goes completely under the radar. No pun intended. But even if it was discovered, the photograph did not reveal much. The buildings of Area 51 are made with a design called Scutenhides. They are garage-like hangars which planes can quickly hide beneath if they need to avoid being caught on an enemy satellite photograph. Though many have argued that the main facilities of Area 51 are underground. And this would make things even more difficult to capture through satellite. Which was a growing concern as the Cold War entered the years of the space race in the early 1960s. Finally, even the work conditions at Area 51 were secretive. Area 51 often used civilian contractors flown in on flights from McCarran Airport in Las Vegas. And once they got there, they discovered the advertised Paradise Ranch was not as lush as it sounded. Many of the buildings did not have windows, so workers could not see what was really being worked on. They even had many teams working on different parts of the same project without collaboration, so no workers could get the full picture of what the project really was. With all of this airtight security, map manipulation, and purchasing of land, it really begs the question, what could they be so committed to hiding? What could possibly demand this level of opacity and secrecy? Area 51 is guarded more heavily than some of the United States' most sacred buildings, including CIA headquarters and the Pentagon. Were the spy planes they were building really so important? And on top of that, the spy planes were often planned and constructed at Lockheed in Burbank, California, after which they were then shipped to Area 51 for testing. So you'd think it would be easier to uproot the secrets before they even got to Area 51. Absolutely. What could it be about the flight test that demanded more secrecy than the construction of the plane itself? Ooh, it is all very curious. And it suggests that there is a lot more going on at Area 51 than we will ever know. Because even after the satellites made these spy planes obsolete, the government continued to deny Area 51 even existed until the 2013 report. But one thing is for sure. As the government continued to tighten the seal on all things related to their base at Area 51, interest and speculation around the place only seemed to grow and grow. The 2013 CIA document detailed the goings-on at Area 51 up until the A-12 Oxcart's final flights in 1968. And although we lose the thread of the specific research and evolution after that point, we can use first-hand accounts and other declassified documents to piece together some of the other projects that came out of Area 51. These first-hand accounts are generally from civilian employees. As over the years, the laws around discussing work at Area 51 have slackened considerably. The declassified documents, generally projects by the Air Force, detail testing done at the base near Groom Lake, which we can assume is Area 51. And though none of these things are 100% confirmed by the government, we can say with a certain amount of confidence that they happened. The next natural step in spy technology was the stealth plane. These were planes made with an outer layer of material capable of deflecting radar waves as they struck it. This would make these planes virtually invisible to radar. Lockheed designed a plane it called Have Blue, specifically designed to evade radar detection. It was the first plane created in such a way as to minimize contact with radar waves, rather than being optimized for flight efficiency. 
The Have Blue prototype stealth fighter was first tested at Area 51 in December of 1977. The test was so impressive, the Air Force awarded Lockheed a full contract to pursue research into stealth fighters soon thereafter. That contract quickly led to a new plane, one that was a game changer. And again, it was a plane that the world had never seen before. It was called the F-117 Nighthawk, making its first ever flight of Area 51 in June of 1982. It was the first functional stealth fighter to ever come into existence, and it spawned an entirely new generation of fighter jet. The F-117 was the hallmark of renewed potential for the United States Air Force and is noted for its performance in the Persian Gulf War in 1991. However, there's a darker side to this story of the development of the F-117 and the effects of its technology. It's a story that has been repeatedly drowned out by our patriotic veil, and it is a story that begins and ends with Area 51. After the first test flight of the F-117 at Groom Lake in 1981, Area 51 became a hub of experimental stealth technology, a place where cutting-edge planes were tested and retested as America tried to remain at the front of the military frontier. It was around this time that two civilian sheet metal workers, Robert Frost and Walter Kasha, began working at the famed military outpost. But their working conditions were less than ideal. Because stealth technology was such a new and profound secret, the base went to great lengths to preserve that secret. This meant burning it. All of it. Anything to do with stealth technology was laid to waste. Metals, solvents, paints, and other toxic wastes were burned in pits on the base premises. And there was a lot to burn. A security guard named Fred Dunham claims that these burns happened twice a week and lasted 24 hours each burn. This may have happened for almost all of the 1980s. Talk about working under a shadow. That couldn't have been good for their health. It certainly was not. Remember the two sheet metal workers we mentioned before? Walter Kasha and Robert Frost? Right. Well, they both died of unnatural causes. Robert Frost in 1989 at age 57, and Wally Kasha at age 73 in 1995. Their two widows and five other anonymous former Groom Lake employees filed a lawsuit in 1995 against Area 51 for damages they suffered while on the job. The workers claimed they suffered from years of respiratory problems, cancers, and skin rashes caused from inhaling the smoke of toxic material. According to the lawsuit, the employees routinely requested safety materials like breathing masks, but were denied due to budgetary concerns. Strange coming from the extremely well-funded base producing the peak of American technology. Well, strange indeed. We are talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on these planes, and none of that could go into safety regulations? Well, perhaps because the other secrets of Area 51 were so well kept, they figured they could bypass some of these regulations for their employees. And even when these employees asked if they could bring their own materials, their superiors denied it for security reasons. Security reasons? You mean they couldn't sign off on some paper masks? Odd, isn't it? Why were they so afraid of bringing in the most basic of outside materials? Maybe they were afraid of employees sneaking in cameras. Or maybe they were afraid of contaminating something they didn't understand. Something alien. Whatever it was, the prosecution's lawyer, Jonathan Turley, was in a pickle. 
How do you try a place that does not exist? Well, it turns out this is pretty difficult. When Turley was able to produce an unclassified security manual, which he asserted not only proved Area 51 existed, but that they were also accountable for certain safety regulations, the government merely made that safety manual classified. They were always one step ahead of the curve in this trial, classifying sensitive documents before they could be used as evidence. And to hammer the point home, President Bill Clinton signed an order that prevented the results of environmental tests at Area 51 by the Environmental Protection Agency from releasing their results. So the judge could find nothing to convict the agencies behind Area 51, citing that any lawsuit against the base would jeopardize national security leaving the two widows to grieve the memory of their husbands. But what came out of this case was the executive order to prevent publicized results from the EPA about the Groom Lake base. This legislation was not a one-time thing which President Clinton drafted and signed in September of 1995, but rather is something the President of the United States has to reissue every single year. Wait. You're saying that every president since Clinton has had to sign off on this cover-up? Not just every president. Every president four times in their term. This tradition even continues today, with the executive office reissuing the act every year. So whatever that EPA test is revealing, the government clearly doesn't want it to get out. Now, it's possible they want to keep their record clean in case of future lawsuits that they are afraid if the EPA releases information on less-than-ideal work conditions, there might be a great public outcry against the base. Maybe, but it sure looks like they have something to hide. It seems unlikely that the forces behind Area 51 would be much affected by the public, especially after stonewalling the constant barrage of rumors that surrounded that place over the years. So to think that they were afraid of some sort of protest seems a little outlandish. Well, perhaps they were afraid of the chemical composition of stealth technology falling in the wrong hands. This seems more likely, but is also a stretch. Even if those elements were discovered, it is one thing to know the ingredients, but quite another to know the recipe. So we're agreed that the EPA test is hiding something imperative? It seems so, even though we will probably never know what it is. No matter what the EPA found or did not find, the effect of Area 51 was felt by the workers and their families. An autopsy of frost revealed extremely high levels of dioxin, dibenzofuran, and trichloroethylene, chemicals which were mentioned in an unclassified document giving details about the F-117 Nighthawk. But this will never be proven as an issue of national security. And we may never fully understand the effects of working conditions or why the base at Groom Lake was so committed to burning materials to get rid of evidence. Evidence of some of the greatest kept secrets in our nation's history. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to conspiracy theories. For years, Area 51 was one of the best-kept secrets on the planet, being erased from maps, photographs, and containing a large enough border to shut virtually everything inside. But slowly, as satellite technology began to develop and rules around previous workers discussing their time at Area 51 have been eased, the secrets around the Groom Lake base have started to leak into the public eye. 
It started in 1988, when the Soviets took a satellite image of Area 51. Popular Science magazine obtained a copy of the image and published a story with it soon thereafter. The response was underwhelming. Area 51, viewed from a satellite perspective, looks like just a bunch of buildings. Which is what it is, if we are to believe government officials. Area 51 includes several hangars, office buildings, and runways. Minor additions have been added over the years, but nothing so dramatic as to ring any alarms. This is why some conspiracy theorists claim that Area 51 is actually a giant underground fortress, complete with networks leading to secret locations in Los Angeles and other nearby military facilities. Though we will leave this discussion for the next episode. For now, it's safe to assume that what you see is what you get, but what is inside those buildings is a whole other story that only a handful of people know. The 1988 Popular Science article put a damper on the excitement of Area 51, but it was soon to be ignited again. In 1989, a man named Robert Lazar came forward and claimed to have worked for Area 51. However, what he said was completely extraordinary. Lazar went on television to claim that he had worked with defense contractor EG&G on alien technology at a base he called S-4 near Groom Lake. And while Lazar was met with both believers and skeptics alike, he did one thing for sure, reignite the interest in the top secret Nevada base. The government, of course, denies Lazar's story and discredits him through his credentials. Bob Lazar claimed to have a master's degree from both Caltech and MIT, but there is no record of him holding either of these. We will look in more detail at Lazar's story and what he said about Area 51 next week. But the important thing in our story today is that he once more stirred up the controversy around Area 51. So much so that Area 51 and the nearest town of Rachel, Nevada, started to generate a tourist economy centered around the base. Pilgrims began coming to try their hand at catching a glimpse of UFOs and other strange and exciting things near Area 51. And locals responded, opening bars like the Little Alien and selling alien-themed t-shirts and other souvenirs. Whether the inhabitants of Rachel believed in the conspiracies surrounding Area 51 or not, they embraced its fame and turned it into a profitable endeavor. The reason this is important to our official version is because despite what was happening at Area 51, what was happening around it is sometimes just as important. This is, after all, what generated so much hype around the base in the first place. And the local tourism, conspiracy theories or not, is as much a part of the history of Area 51 as the work they were doing there. Yes, the economy and cultural effect of the area is undeniable. However, Not everyone loved the attention they were getting. In his 1989 interview, among the many things he detailed, Bob Lazar named a particular mailbox where he would take people to observe scheduled flights of UFOs from Area 51. It became known as the Black Mailbox, and tourists flocked to the hotspot of UFO sightings, even though what they were really watching was the tests of different spy planes at the nearby military base. 
Steve Medlin, the owner of the ranch, was not too happy about his place being volunteered as a tourist destination. Not happy is right. He even painted the mailbox white to try and deter people from coming there and asserts that he has no belief whatsoever in UFOs existing at the military base. But this has not stopped curious travelers. There now is a second, smaller mailbox marked simply alien as a type of landmark or guide for people who want to catch a glimpse of the peculiar flights that come out of the Groom Lake base. Although what these flights are exactly is still classified. We assume the official story is that they are more experimental aircraft meant for both reconnaissance missions and general military activity. And so, despite bringing in some tourism through industry, there was still controversy around the attention it brought to the locals. After the Bob Lazar interview in 1989, the controversy around Area 51 reached a pinnacle. Questions were asked, answers were demanded, nothing was revealed. The 1995 lawsuit that stemmed from the deaths of Robert Frost and Wally Kasha came and went and served only to grant Area 51 more secrecy than it had before. It was one of the many things that allowed the government to keep their cards about Area 51 so close to the chest and to continually lie about it over the course of 60 years. And if not for the Freedom of Information Act request in 2005, the government most likely would have continued lying. But instead, the CIA was forced to release their documents on the U-2 and A-12 spy planes. Freedom of Information Act request? Yes, a piece of legislation that was passed in 1966 by Lyndon B. Johnson and requires a certain amount of transparency from U.S. government agencies. So, Jeffrey T. Richelson of George Washington University's National Security Archive was able to use the legislation to obtain the document for the purpose of public debate and research. But he wasn't allowed access to what is happening at Area 51 now? He was not, as that information is still deemed top secret due to national security. And we can assume they will never voluntarily release this information? I would say that's a safe assumption. But if we were to hear something, we imagine it would be along the vague lines of top secret research into new technologies for the Air Force what has come to be a practice lie for those in charge of Area 51. But we think there's more to it than that. 100% there is more to it. But the question is, what? Well, there are countless conspiracy theories on what is happening at Area 51, but we have settled on four theories worth discussing next week. The first, and most major, starts in a town called Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, where a rancher found some strange material on his land. The Air Force initially called it remnants from an unidentified flying object, but then quickly redacted that statement. Could this have been the remains of a crashed alien ship? And could the government have brought it to Area 51 for research? Hmm. The second conspiracy theory we will cover is that we are using alien technology to develop our own. This was the main theory put out by Robert Lazar, and while it's not exactly separate from the Roswell incident, we will treat it individually. A third, less exciting conspiracy theory is that we are developing technologies way ahead of what the U.S. is willing to admit. 
like stealth transporters for ground troops and other extremely advanced aircraft. And finally, some conspiracy theorists claim all the other conspiracy theories were crafted by a shadow organization called MJ-12 that included powerful men like Harry Truman, who started these tall tales to cover up their true intentions, world domination. So there is a lot of detail to cover, but fear not. We will discuss all these theories in depth next episode. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more conspiracy theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week as we continue our second look at Area 51. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Drew Cole and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 